Working Wife, Happy Life listeners. Welcome back to another episode. I am your host, Bethany Baines. Thank you for bearing with me on some more sporadic releases from yours truly. I appreciate all your patience and diligence in not knowing quite when another episode will drop. We are finally getting into some sort of a routine on our side here with fall in full swing and school in full swing, which has been great. And we are finally wrapping up on some of our home projects. And I was thinking the other day, when people talk about contractors, general contractors, construction workers, the bar is so low um, in terms of what we expect from them versus what we expect from any other professional. So you'll say things like, oh, they show up on time, or they charge you what they said they would charge you, or they sweep after they're done. It's like a very minimal kind of expectation in terms of performance, which doesn't really apply to many other professions. And it's funny, I always think that, you know, at work we talk about authentic leadership and, you know, you're just so human and you're so vulnerable and honest. And I just feel like, again, that's probably a pretty low bar that we're setting for our our corporate leaders. So that's just something I wanted to share with you is that, you know, maybe it shouldn't be so shocking when somebody is authentic and honest and vulnerable. Um, And somehow the business world has tried to extract that part of humanity from us as leaders. Um, But as I riff on that, it makes me really think of today's guest and kind of the awesome way that she walks us through the next conversation in terms of thinking about how we engage in the workforce as women and how we engage particularly as working moms. So our guest today, Joanne S. Lubin, is an extremely established and recognized leader in the journalist world who raised two children while rising to management news editor of the Wall Street Journal, where she's been recognized with a shared Pulitzer Prize and the highest accolade in business journalism, the Gerald Loeb Lifetime Achievement Award. She also inaugurated the journal's career advice column in 1993 and continued to write for this column titled Your Executive Career until May of last year. She's now written two books, her first, Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World, and now Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life, where she interviewed 86 power moms, baby boomers from the first wave and Gen Xers from the second, along with 25 adult daughters of those first wave boomers. Together we discuss the differences and similarities across generational power moms, perspectives from adult daughters of power moms, which was fascinating to me, and the underlying theme is to ditch the mom guilt. We talked about the importance of supportive partners, as well as how women navigate and are perceived in the workplace as they make more humans. And spoiler alert, motherhood actually makes us better leaders. We also talked about how to think about the ever-elusive work-life balance in terms of work-life sway. I hope you enjoy this wonderful conversation with Joanne, an original power mom. I don't want to fear love. I don't want to say no. I want to stay up, stay up. 
Okay, Joanne, I'm so happy to be speaking with you this morning. Thank you so much for making the time to join the Working Wife Happy Life podcast. And I'm happy to be on your happy podcast. <laughs> We're not always happy, but we try to make it work. The The name of the podcast is very intentional, as, um, as my listeners know, but I kind of came into the breadwinning role and everything I read told me that I couldn't be a working wife and have a happy life. And so that's why I, it is my motto to try to make that come true as many days as possible. And you know what, if we make it our motto, it will indeed come true on some days and other days. Big deal. And, and, And other days, exactly. You acknowledge that that one was a miss and you move on. And sometimes it's hour by hour, minute by minute, but it is. I put the intention into the world each day. Uh, Well, you are just a wonderfully decorated and established leader in the journalist world. Uh, You raised two children while rising to management news editor of the Wall Street Journal. You have been recognized by sharing their Pulitzer Prize and the highest accolade in business journalism, the Gerald Loeb Lifetime Achievement Award. You inaugurated their career advice column in 1993, which you continued to write until May of last year, your executive career column, and you've now written two books. So your first book is Earning It, Hard-Won Lessons from Trailblazing Women at the Top of the Business World. And now the book we're here to talk about today, Power Moms, How Executive Mothers Navigate Work and Life. I cannot wait for this conversation. I can't think of a more important, more crucial, and more multi-layered topic to to discuss. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we have found each other. Let's just kick off talking about the new book because you interviewed 86 power moms and you took a generally generational lens on on these interviews, interviewing both baby boomers in what you call the first wave, as well as Gen Xers, which I think I am at 45 in the second Mm -hmm. wave. Um, And then you also interviewed the adult daughters of that first wave. So uh, let's dig in there. Why was that kind of approach so important to you in terms of looking at the generations? And what did you uncover um, in terms of, you know, things that have changed or evolved or not changed or evolved? So part of the genesis for the book was the first book, the book called Earning It. And in that book, I interviewed 52 high-ranking executive women, most of whom became public company CEOs, people like Mary Barra at, at General Motors. And when I took a closer look at those 52 women, not only were more than a majority women with kids, But among the ones who had become public company chief executives, the proportion was even higher. Hmm. And the point of that book was to look at how overcoming obstacles, both personal and professional, can make you a better leader. And while I really did not focus on their roles as, as parents, I had one chapter in that book where it looked at what they had done as working moms. And the Mm. title of the chapter came from one of those 52 women who's making a repeat appearance in the new book. And the title of the chapter was Manager Moms Are Not Acrobats. And it was this notion that work-life balance is kind of uh, an ideal that could never be, frankly, Mm -hmm. achieved. So for the second book, given that all but one of those 52 women were women from my generation, the baby boom generation, I wanted to understand better 
how women had been successful who had had children and at some point became business executives and what, if anything, had changed. Had it gotten better or was it just as hard for the younger wave of women, women who were anywhere from their early 30s to early 40s when I did these interviews, which started uh, at the very end of 2018 and went through most of 2019. So basically, you had to be under 45 at the point when I interviewed you at that time period. Um, yep. So you would have qualified. I would have been there. Two yes. thirds were Gen Xers, one third were millennials. But I generalize and say that essentially these were the Gen Xers. The boomers mm-hmm. were, again, you know, women who were born in in the baby boom generation. But then I also wanted to know what was it like growing up having your mom be a really successful business leader. And Mm -hmm. so I interviewed 25 young women, women who were the adult, young adult daughters of the boomers. So altogether, there were 111 interviews. And what I found was that indeed, there had been a generational shift. And it Mm -hmm. had happened for three reasons that the younger wave of executive moms were actually navigating that juggle with somewhat greater aplomb and frankly with somewhat greater, much greater sense of entitlement because frankly, some of them had read the first book, okay? And they believed that they had earned it. Excellent. And, And so you had improvements in technology, which of course is the whole reason why we've been able to work virtually so many of us in white collar jobs during the 18 months that we've been struggling with the pandemic. And secondly, the, the workplace had changed. Not only were companies much more cognizant of the need to pay attention to working moms and dads and serve them differently in order to retain and recruit them, but Many of those boomer moms were in positions of power Mm -hmm. and could serve not only as role models, but mentors and sponsors, advocates on behalf of that next wave of executive women who were having kids and were also starting to become executive. A lot of those boomer moms not only became corporate leaders, but sponsors of ERGs for parents or for Mm -hmm. women. And then the third change was that the home life had changed, whereas many of those boomer moms could not count on their better halves, which overwhelmingly were husbands. They all were were husbands. Um, Only in the younger generation did I find women with life partners, or in one case, a wife. But not only could they not count on their husbands to be their co-parents, they felt guilty if they actually you know, ask their husbands to do stuff that they did. Mm -hmm. There was this one boomer mom who had a job that she worked evenings and she later becomes the first vice chair of General Electric. But this is early in her career. She's working at a cable TV station. She gets a dinner break. Her husband, I think, was a stockbroker. He's an ex-husband now. You can understand why. She would (laughs) spend her dinner break going home and making him dinner. Oh, God. And I said, why Why did you do that? Why couldn't he make himself dinner? She said, it never would have occurred to me to ask him to do it. Oh. She, they didn't even have kids at that point. They were just newlyweds. And it's kind of like what you did. Mm-hmm. And it was the expectation. It's so interesting because you said a word earlier on that I think has a really negative connotation, which is unfair. And it is that entitlement. And so when I hear that thread of that woman who never even thought 
that she wouldn't have to make dinner for her husband because she didn't feel entitled to make that request. Exactly. Fascinating. Fascinating. Because it was what was considered to be acceptable behavior at that mm-hmm. time, just like it would be considered unacceptable behavior today. When your daughter is a young adult and perhaps deciding to have kids or thinking about having kids, she's going to challenge you at the same level that your generation looked back at the boomers to mm-hmm. say, well, gosh, mom, why did you do X? Mm-hmm. Because every generation sees the world with fresh eyes and hopefully writes a whole new image and picture of what can be. Yeah. I I think that's what's so inspiring and hopeful about this whole, you know, just evolution, right? Because the the whole concept of going to work is relatively new in the past couple of centuries. The whole idea of women being the the domesticators is something that I think was a social construct. Yes. And I see it even now with, you know, women where they just say, I'm just better at doing this stuff than my husband is. It's like, you've been trained to think that and to say that like there's, you might do it on a different timeline, but it doesn't mean you're necessarily better at this. Um, And I'd love to chat. You highlighted that with your husband, you guys actually had a a marriage contract, which I think you drew up before you actually got married. And I am so intrigued by that foresight because for breadwinning women, the majority of us find ourselves in this role without having expected to be here. But I am seeing a shift in the community that I run of younger breadwinning women who are either in a relationship or not yet in a relationship who anticipate being the breadwinner. And so they are setting themselves up in a totally different mindset and intention, as we discussed earlier, going into these relationships, which I think is such a tremendous gift. And I think that's really, really important, particularly as women meet the person who they hope will be their life partner, to have some really serious conversations before you commit to each other about what it is your expectations are in terms of being perhaps part of a two-career couple. What are your expectations in terms of who's going to step back and perhaps get off that career track when and if you decide to have kids? Is it all right for one of you to be a stay-at-home parent? And if so, how long is that going to last? And when do you, if you choose to be the stay-at-home parent, get to say, time's up? And to agree to revisit that conversation with great regularity and frequency. So in, in our case, this idea of a marriage contract arose out of the fact that when we decided to get engaged, I was already working for the Wall Street Journal. We were living in California. It was the early 70s, living together outside the bonds of marriage. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my parents did not approve. Um, but I announced to my fiancé that I planned to keep my name after we got married because I had done enough you know, research on the topic that I knew legally I could do that. And he was very opposed to that idea. Mm. And I was like, who cares? You know, everybody lives together here in California. They don't know whether you're married or not. And he's like, I'm talking about the the relatives back home in Phil. He came from the Philly area. You know, how will he explain why your name's different than mine? I said, Mm. I get it. Let's hyphenate our last names. And he couldn't live with that. 
because then it would be changing his name. And I was like, duh. There you go. Which, again, the journalist in me began wondering, what else does I, you know, am I going to give up in becoming a married woman, even if I'm not Mrs. So-and-so? And mm -hmm. so what I learned was there were laws on the book at the time uh, that discriminated against women by their marital status. Um, the local San Francisco Chronicle had a story about a woman who legally separated from her husband, moved to L.A., and was not allowed to register to vote because oh her God. legal domicile was where her still husband lived. Um, and as I dug further, I found out that in the 1800s, when the suffragist movement came into fore, women who were the leaders of the suffragist movement and deciding to get married didn't want to give up their rights that they were going to lose as married women. Many, I believe, you know, most women were not allowed to hold property if they were married. And so they started drawing up marriage contracts, which basically, you know, was an agreement with their future husband as to how they were going to have their married life. So I said, I want one of those. Yeah. And I was already a member of the National Organization for Women, remained uh, such a member, got the name of the local legal counsel for the San Francisco chapter, and we brought to her our, our draft of our document. And there were some very key points to that. And one of them was that he accepted my decision to keep my name. And I said, in turn, if we had children, they would have his last name, uh, but they would have my last name as their middle name which uh, our daughter Abra always resented when she was in elementary school because all the other girls had Linda or Sally or Sue right. or Jean as their middle name, and she had Lublin as her middle name, which made her bad enough. Her name was Abra, which nobody could pronounce or spell. Um, but the second key aspect of that marriage conquest was who decided where we lived. And so mm. we put in writing in the marriage contract, since we were both journalists, that we would alternate who chose where we lived. And because he and I were the same age, but I had skipped a grade, I had started my career a year ahead of him. He followed me out to California. And I knew that if he then wanted to live somewhere else at whatever point that was, I would have to leave San Francisco against my better wishes. Um, and so we did. You know, he, he left uh, undergrad and came out to California. We then moved to Chicago where I joined the Journal Chicago Bureau so he could go to grad school in, in journalism. And then when I was seven months pregnant with our son, I got offered a transfer to the Washington Bureau. And so I invoked the, the contract right. and, and, and the right to decide where we move next. The only sentence that survived translation of legal ease was one that Mike wrote which was that household duties shall be shared equally, but not necessarily cheerfully. <laughs> I, I love this story. I love that it is, first of all, I, when I first read that, I thought maybe it was, you know, kind of a loosey-goosey contract between the two of you, but this was actually legally bound contractual language to, it was to an contractual language. you know it's never been enforced anywhere and yeah and the alternating where we live fell apart because we moved to washington I, you know I, I we have two kids are born there and then i get offered a chance to go into management and become the number two person in the london bureau 
1987, but technically it's not my turn. It's Mike's turn. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I basically came home and said, well, I got this great offer to go move to London. Too bad I have to turn it down. And he was like, what are you talking about? We've always wanted to live abroad. I said, well, because it's your turn. He's like, forget it. (laughs) Well, I mean, you've got to have that flexibility. Absolutely. It it set the grounds for, you know, the foundation of how meaningful your career, your your decision making, your legacy with your children's names, these things that I even down to the housework, these things that people really don't give a lot of forethought to because look, I mean, you're in the throes of being in love and everything's so exciting and there's jewelry and dresses in some traditional ways. And so you don't think that you're ever going to have those struggles in a way that you just think you're the first people in the world to just have this all nailed out. And I always say you definitely are not sitting on the couch next to the same person you walk down the aisle with. Like it's just, you change as people, you change as individuals. And I, and when you become parents, you change again. Yes. Yes. And you continue to change. I'm, I'm learning as the children grow, you continue to kind of evolve in terms of who is playing which role. And, uh, you know, I will say from a professional perspective, my career got very clear once my husband retired and became a primary caregiving dad. Hmm. All of a sudden, we weren't juggling the schedules. We weren't horse trading whose calls were more important. Hmm. Um, it just became very clear my path, your path. Now, that's blurred again now that I've been home for the past 18 months. And, you know, it's like you can throw in a load of laundry or you can do a camp pickup, which is wonderful. But it also has made things a little bit more gray. Um, the roles have gotten a little blurred. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and in a, I would say far more positive way uh-huh. in terms of just being able to be more present and more involved. But still, I'm sure there will be a moment where, you know, things shake up again if and when we ever do return to whatever normal, the new normal is. But the whole point, as I said at the outset to your question, is it's important to have these serious conversations and to review. There was one of the Gen Xer women that I interviewed that, you know, because of the background that she had in business, her husband's a physician, she insisted that they have quarterly strategic planning sessions even before they got married. And they've continued those, you know, they have them in, a, in their kitchen. But, you know, like when she, she was pregnant with their first child at one of their quarterly strategic planning sessions, they debated whether they wanted to use a nanny. Uh, and she knew that he had a very busy career as a surgeon. She knew she'd be traveling a lot for work because she already was. Um, and, you know, they basically hashed out that, that issue and decided, yes, they did want to have a nanny. And they again, discuss whether it should be someone who lived in or lived out. But the whole idea is they were thinking ahead. And Mm -hmm. because they have this framework in which they do this four times a year, they can always reset the clock. And Mm -hmm. they use those strategic planning sessions, not only to talk about running the household together or parenting, but to check in on each other. And how are we doing as a couple? Because you know what? There was a reason we decided to make our lives together because we loved each other. And let's see how we're doing, you know, on the marriage front. So I yeah. thought that was a very smart idea. It is. And and it actually brings me to to another point where, you know, I've always said being a working mom is 
I, I likened it to those who didn't have children yet. You know, before you go on vacation where you have, you clear out your inbox, you clear out all your to-dos, everything is done and organized. That is a working mom every day, right? Like we are just getting everything done, getting it because we know what's going to happen tomorrow is unknown. And we've got to be prepared with a clean slate when we go in. And you've shared that so many, you know, working parents and particularly working moms, so many of these skills actually make us better and stronger leaders. Tell me a little bit about what you uncovered in terms sure. of what is, some of those real specific skills are. Well, I have a, a very strong chapter on that topic in the book called Better Mom, Better Boss. And what it really looks at is if we become mothers before we become bosses, that whole experience of being a mom actually makes us a better boss. Mm. And at the same time, if we're really good bosses before we become moms, what we've learned as being managers actually makes us uh, better moms. Mm -hmm. But in terms of it from the first perspective, I think all parents, men and women alike, when they have a child, become very adept at delegating. They become very adept at setting priorities. They know how to multitask. And if you don't, your, your two-year-old's going to run away from you in Target. You know, you, you've got to be able to delegate effectively to set priorities and multitask. All those things make you much more effective on the job, whether you're a boss or not. But I think moms, and to a lesser extent dads, especially, but very much so for dads who are very involved, have even additional characteristics um, that make those mothers particularly effective as bosses. And one is the fact that they are highly empathetic listeners. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't, as a new mom, get to distinguish between those five different types of cries, you're never going to know whether it's time to change the poop, you know, give the kid a bath or, or, or nurse him or give them a ball. The second thing is they are very patient teachers, okay? They, they encourage people who work for them just like they do their kids to learn from their mistakes mm -hmm. um, because we all become better human beings by, by learning from our mistakes. And the third thing is I think women are particularly effective as mentors, and I want to tell you a little bit more about the construct of Power Moms. So I use the same publisher as with Earning It. And HarperCollins, my publisher, the second time around, she said to me, I want every chapter to start with a personal story of your journey as a working mom. And I said, okay, but what if I never became an executive? I was a first-line supervisor. What if I don't have a relevant experience? She said, well, then you're going to have to explain to your readers why. And frankly, that was hardest in the Better Mom, Better Boss chapter because I was a mom before I became a boss. And while I thought I was a pretty good mom, I never thought I was a very good boss. And so I end up opening that chapter with an anecdote about how I screwed up as a boss. And then I redeem myself. I forgive myself because I then find out that actually in one respect, I was a very good boss because I was a very effective mentor. And I was a mentor, not just to people who work for me directly, but for my peers. And so you know, at, at that award ceremony for getting that lifetime achievement award, ahead of giving my acceptance speech, 
they had teams of journalists who had been nominated for the individual awards get up and speak. And each team was allowed 90 seconds to talk about their nominated you know, entry into the contest. And one of those who spoke was a former journal colleague who used 45 of her 90 seconds to talk about how powerful a mentor I had been of hers as a peer. And I'm like crying. I hadn't even gotten up there yet. I just got a little teared up. I I know. I I mean, I could not believe that she would take half of her 90 seconds to say, you know, I have to give a shout out to Joe Henderson because of the role model she was. That is one of those things where, you know, we have no idea. There's that Maya Angelou quote, which I love about when a woman stands up for herself without knowing it, she stands up for every other woman. And when you play that role in life and certainly within the workplace, you have no idea how many people you're impacting just by showing up each day. Even if you never speak with them, just the fact that they see that you can do it. My entire time, so I've been a working mom for 14 years. Um, I've worked at the same company that entire time. To this day, I still have not reported into another working mom. Really? What what industry are you working in? Technology. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's been very, you know, I'm, I'm not going to feel bad for myself, but there's moments where it's been very hard and my commitment has been to be that person for other women. Just to show you can show up to a meeting and you can be 10 minutes late and have graham cracker on your shoulder and still kick ass. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because what's up here has nothing to do with any of this other stuff. And so I I think really showcasing that and and you're, you're touching on something else in terms of, and I don't know if it's a social construct, but this idea of mom guilt and Mm -hmm. this idea of, you know, the way you said you never thought of yourself as a good boss. And that's inherently some sort of insecurity, even though you had no idea the impact that you were making. That's right. And I feel like mom guilt is just in that same, the same thread of, you know, well, how could I possibly be a good mother if I'm here enjoying and thriving in my career? And guess what? That's why you are a good mother because you are enjoying and thriving in your career. Mm -hmm. And so that woman who, gave me that executive from Procter & Gamble who gave me that quote that becomes the title of that chapter in earning it, then says to me when I interview her for Power Moms, you should have an entire chapter on ditching working mother guilt because I think it is such a waste of energy. And so uh, that chapter essentially lays out 10 hacks that these 86 moms, you know, the best of their suggestions. And one of them comes from that former Procter and Gamble executive who says, you know, we need to look at life as the glass half full, not the glass half empty, and just forget about this guilt stuff. And I said, okay, so what does that mean? And she says, when you and your family are sitting down to dinner at seven o'clock, because you've been working a really long day, rather than guilt tripping yourself about OMG, you know, it's seven o'clock and we haven't eaten yet. Instead, give yourself a pat on the back and say, isn't it great that I can eat with my husband or my significant other and my kids and it's a Mm -hmm. weeknight? Mm -hmm. And so that to me- reframe it. You reframe it. It's like self-care, which is another one of the 10 hacks in that chapter. There's so many women who say, you know, I don't have time to, to take care of me. 
But if you can't take care of you, you can't take care of anybody else. And so self-care is actually selfless care. Mm-hmm. It's not selfish care. Yeah. And and my son, Dan, when he was a toddler, one evening was playing with his dad after dinner and after work, because we always kept our children up very late on weeknights. I didn't care if all these stay-at-home moms would guilt trip me. Oh, my God, you let your two-year-old go to bed at 930? It's like, yeah, he takes a longer nap at daycare. I don't care. It's the only time I right. get to spend one. But since he was having a good time with his dad, I thought, this is time for for me, right? And for self-care. And I went and took a bubble bath. And no sooner had I gotten the bath that I hear. Of course. And it's Dan, you know, three-year-old Dan, two-and-a-half-year-old Dan knocking on the door. Mommy, mommy, what are you doing? I said, Dan, mommy's having some me time. Mommy, can I have me time with you? <laughs> okay, now, if that doesn't make you feel guilty, I don't know what would. But I knew this was really important, okay? I'd had a really stressful day at work, whatever. And I said, Dan, I know you're having fun right now with Dad. Go back and play some more with your Legos with Dad. And when I'm done with my bath, I will read you a good night story. Okay. He has no recollection of this whatsoever. He's now the very happy father of three. Um, But he's a wonderful dad. Yeah. And you redirected that into like... Not right now, but what what a wonderful thing we can do in the future. You know, I, I actually had a woman that I just spoke with last week who has young kids. I think they're two and three or three and four. And she's, you know, having this moment of fear, like she's going to miss out if she keeps mm-hmm. working and doesn't spend time F-O-M-O. with them. <laughs> yeah. And she asked me if I ever regretted not taking a break to be with my kids when they were young. And- it never even occurred to me to regret it. Ah. Because How I long did I'm, you take off after each kid? So Google, I work for Google. They have an amazingly flexible uh, and, and generous by American standards leave. So I was five months with, um, five months with both of my kids. Fabulous. Um, but they went to daycare a block away from my office. And I, you know, I could see them if I needed to, but I tried not to, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> yeah, it just it was one of those moments where I I, I didn't I don't feel like I missed anything. Uh, you know? I, I missed some things here and there, sure, but did I miss anything that has impeded on the connection I have with my children or them knowing that I'm their mother? Like right. none of that made a difference. But to the point as to why do moms still have working mother guilt and relatively few fathers do, even among the younger generation women, it's because we still have these gendered role expectations. It's why Marissa Meyer, when she leaves Google to become CEO of Yahoo and takes less than a month off because she's pregnant when she joins the company, she only takes like two weeks off after her son is born, and creates essentially a, a nursery in a storeroom next to her office so that her nanny can take care of the baby and she can go in there and nurse the kid. She, she nurses her, her baby while she's going to board meetings down the hall. She gets royally criticized mm-hmm. for doing right. this. And yet, at the same time, she's redesigning the whole parental leave policy. She wants to unveil it, you know, immediately. And, and she's told to essentially... Give it a rest. (laughs) Wait till this period of time in which the baby's coming in the office every day sort of ends. And so she waits until March, and he's like seven months old, to announce this improved parental leave policy. Um, 
And and yet she's excruciated over having done this. And that just speaks volumes to the fact that we have unconscious bias that persists about the fact that moms are still seen as the primary parent. Right. And we, you know, the judgment layer of that exactly. Is, is exactly what ties into the working mom's guilt is if I'm totally. not there, I've had women say to me in daycare, and they certainly don't mean any of these things in the way that you hear them. Um, but things like, oh, you get to be a mom today. I'm a mom every day. I just get to be here right now at this moment. You know, things that just come out that are on a particularly vulnerable day will right. send you into a spiral. Um, but I am curious because I I spent the weekend with some girlfriends and my daughter, who I mentioned is nine. Um, she said something really fun. I can't even remember what she said, but it was a really funny and like empowering statement. And my friend who I've known since you know, we were 12, said, do you know where you get that? And she said, I get it from my mama. She's like, I'm Bethany Baines's daughter. And it's just <laughs> one of those moments I was like, my work here is done. Absolutely. Um, but I'd, I'd love to hear kind of what your findings were from those adult uh, Daughter, daughters that sure. you interviewed that we started talking about at the beginning, because I think that is something where it sounds like they're in a stage of their life where they may be thinking or becoming mothers and kind of how that played right. out, because this is this parenting thing's an experiment. We never know. <laughs> it's gonna, we it's don't like know how it's going to turn out, and we can only hope for the best, and only give ourselves, you know, not a lot of hard times, because we know we have tried to be the best person that we possibly can when it comes to parenting. Mm-hmm. And so, there's 25 adult daughters. Some of them actually already had children of their own. A lot of them were were still, you know, looking for their life partner. But when they talked about growing up with a baby boomer mom who was highly accomplished, they were tremendously proud of their mom. But for the most part, they didn't want to be just like her. But mm. most of us don't want to be just like our parents, whether it's mother or father. We want to be our own unique selves. But as teenagers, they became particularly resentful as to, you know, being asked by friends of their mothers whether, the, you know, they, she wanted to be just like mom or the fact that mom had to travel a lot for, for business. Um, there was one young adult daughter who had essentially anxiety attacks every time her mom went out of town on a business trip and her mom took a lot of trips. And her mom knew in hindsight that her daughter had these stomach aches, but she didn't really put two and two together until years later that it was related to her frequent travel. But at the same time, to the ditch the guilt theme that we've just been talking about, there was another mom whose example did not make it in the story, who 15 years after having gone out of town on her daughter's 12th birthday was still giving herself guilt trips about it. And yet when I asked the now 27-year-old daughter how she felt about the fact that mom wasn't there on the day she turned 12, she's like, yeah, but she was here on Saturday when we had the party because every working mother has the kid's birthday party on the weekend. And she made the, the special cake she always makes, and it was great. I don't remember whether she was here or not on the actual birthday. Mm. And so the mother had been torturing herself for like 15 years for absolutely no good reason. Fast forward, then when these young women are getting out of college and trying to get during college, their first internships, and then after college, their first jobs, they suddenly discovered that they've got this secret weapon that few of their women friends have, which is their mother. 
They have mm. a power mom as their informal career coach. She yes. knows how to network. She can open doors. She can review their LinkedIn profile. There was one boomer mom who made her daughter write her LinkedIn profile when she applied for a CIT job in high school. Never too soon to have your LinkedIn profile. And who would then in turn coach them once they got into their first jobs as to how to make hires, how to fire people for the first time, how to have that first performance review. And it got to be so effective a tool that several of these adult daughters said they had friends who said, could you have your mom look at my cover letter or my thank you note or whatever, my LinkedIn profile. That's amazing. That is actually a, a side of it I never even thought about. You just assume that they'll end up in some different type of industry or at, you know at some phase where whether or not we're relevant at that point. But it's it's such a a valid point. There you have your most uh, candid and committed and most vocal cheerleader you have your most vocal cheerleader it's mom right it's mom (laughs) mom wants you to be successful you know it's funny we we talk to our kids a lot about you know what do they want to do when they are older and my son has said I don't know I haven't asked him recently but um you know he wants to be like his father he wants to be a primary caregiving dad and and make money on the stock market and you know do that sort of stuff and then my daughter's like I want to be a stay-at-home mom. And I'm like, okay, nobody wants to do what I want, what I do. Everyone wants to do what he does. He makes it look so good. Uh, but it's just, what I love is that neither of them have a gender-based, you know, a, approach to what they want in their life. They're just not even thinking about it from what their gender roles may be, which is, you know, hopefully it stays that way. We'll see. But, but- here's another interesting wrinkle to the ditch, the guilt chapter. One yeah. of those adult daughters, you know, her, sees how stressful it was for her mom to be an executive, not only for traveling, but working, you know, remotely, you know, for a couple of years where she only saw her mom once a month type of thing. Mm -hmm. When she becomes herself, a mom decides to become a stay at home mom. And her grandmother helps her with occasional childcare when the stay at home mom goes for her yoga class or art appreciation class or whatever. And she told me that she felt guilty about, leaving her toddler to just do a, a self oh, activity because she was a stay at home mom. Yeah. yeah but, but it, it, I, what she was guilty about was being away from the child and it didn't matter yeah. what the reason was. And so it's not necessarily the work issue that these moms seem to be guilt tripping themselves about. It's that we're not there 24 seven because frankly, kids are greedy. You know, if they could yeah, have okay. us 24 seven, they would. And, we do yeah. give them as much of ourselves as we can afford. And I, I also see that with some friends of mine who are stay-at-home moms where they will really beat themselves up if, you know, they, they didn't plan the right camp or they lost their patience mm-hmm. or they, you know, something went awry. And I always say, look, like, I have bad days at the office, just like you have bad days at home. Like, you've just got to give yourself more grace here. None of us are perfect. Your kids are not going to remember these specific blowups or all of these specific moments, they're going to remember, like, did they feel safe? Did they feel loved? Were they having fun? You know, those mm-hmm. are the things that, mm-hmm. that I hope stick with them. Um, but I, I do want to tap into one thing when, when, you know, you talk about the importance of raising boys. We talk a lot about girls and, and yeah. that emphasis toward working women. And my son has started this. This is actually a lot of how my work started where, when I had told my son, he was probably about 
maybe nine at the time, but I had started doing a lot of speaking for, you know, you know, women's panels or going on women's specific, you know, executive trainings, those types of things. And he said that I was sexist because all I focus on is women. And I had that moment where I said, okay, let me just share a few statistics with you. (laughs) And then I realized, wait a minute, I've got a daughter here who's listening to these statistics and I don't want her to burst her bubble, but I want him to know everything that we're up against and why it's so important. And so I'm just, you know, I'm curious your perspective on this when you're raising boys um, and you're looking at the, the importance of supporting and, and, you know, giving appropriate entitled power to women. I, the word empowering just kind of bothers me a little bit. Um, but like, what was your experience having raised a son or when speaking with some of these power moms whom I'm sure have, have male children, um, how to anchor that? Well, I think it's really important to the extent that each generation is going to try and make life easier for the generation that comes after that we raise feminist children. And I don't care what their genders are, but they have to understand the importance that women be treated fairly because if women are treated not fairly, then men end up getting the short end of the stick because companies that have significant numbers of women in management and significant numbers of women on the board are more financially successful. And in my own case, it was really important to me to raise a feminist son and a feminist daughter. And that, you know, often was not always easy. Uh, when when Dan was uh, in nursery school, he decided he wanted to take ballet. And I really struggled with that. And I thought, you know, I can't be raising a feminist son if I'm not going to let this kid take ballet. And Mm -hmm. so when his first ballet recital comes, he gets to the recital and all the girls are wearing pink tutus, you know, with lots of frilly lace and whatnot. And he's just wearing his black leotard. And he was totally, you know, very upset. And I was like, okay, you know, let's go talk to the teacher. And she found a beautiful red silk, you know, band to put around his waist. And he was fine with that. Mm, But on the other hand, when his sister comes along, he's very perplexed when he sees one afternoon his grandfather giving his sister a bottle with breast milk. And he comes over to me and he's like, Papa can't be giving the baby food. He doesn't have breasts. Oh, okay. And so again, it becomes a teachable moment, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, fast forward, he is now a very, very involved dad. He did not have the option of taking paternity leave when his 10 year old was born. But when his now eight year old was born, he had a it was finally available at the state agency where he worked. And he had very serious misgivings about doing it because no guy had ever done it. Mm, and he yes. was he was racked with guilt about FOMO the whole mm-hmm. time he was on his leave. But on the other hand, his wife had started a job where there was no maternity leave because you weren't eligible for it until you'd been there 12 months and the baby came 11 months later. So... You know, she took her one month vacation and they let her have one month maternity leave. So she went back after two months and she wanted a parent at home for four. So Dan did then stay home for two months with Theodore, his son. 
And then when they had their third child three years ago, he was much more comfortable uh, about taking what was now called parental leave because now he was in a much higher level position at a different agency and, in fact, had been confronted by his own employees who were totally divided over the issue as to whether new parents should be able to bring their babies to work. And in fact, he consulted me. I was like, uh, I'm not going there. You're going to have to tell me how this works out. Because those people who had kids under one wanted this. And those who had older kids or had never been parents were like, no, this will be totally disruptive, et cetera, et cetera. Such a shame when you get past, you know, I, I think there's two ways to think about things. You're either trying to make them better for those that are coming up behind you than what you experienced, or you're like, I did it. I was fine. You can, you can do it too. Um, and that is a very, I do think the parental leave and men taking their paternity leave uh, is a game changer. In it society. totally is. But we have to make it socially acceptable yes. for men to do that. And there's this great example in the book of one of the younger power moms who, you know, her partner has just started a new job at a major management consultancy when she gives birth to twin boys and, and they already have a, a, a toddler son. Um, and she wants him to take the parental leave that he is allowed by this new employer. And he's like, first of all, none of the guys in my group do it or have done it. And I'm the newbie. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I, I could go on for hours about this topic, but I do think modeling is very important. I think it should be man mandatory. If your company offers parental leave, <laughs> you must take it. To the full extent. And one of my other kind of pet peeves, which a lot of companies are doing, and I'm curious if you came across any companies that you think are doing particularly well in this space. Um, but one of the pet peeves I have is that the parental leave can be broken up. Right. So you, can, as long as you use it within a year, you can go week by week. Right. Now, one, it is also disruptive to the flow of business. But two, how nice for you that you can strategically choose when to take sure. this leave so as not to miss the big projects or the promotion cycles or the big meetings or any right. of those things. But, but not only that, it often then works better from a parenting standpoint. Uh, because, you know, for instance, mom can go back to work after X number of months and then dad can start his parental leave. And maybe mom can go back to work sooner than she expected because again of the work issues for her or for him. And then when his parental leave is up, she can resume her mm -hmm. parental leave. Yeah. I did talk to a couple of the younger executive moms who had taken only six or eight weeks, but were planning late and their babies were under a year. We're planning later in the year to then take a couple more months. Yeah. But in terms of modeling to the point that you were saying, I think the modeling has to happen at the top. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the younger executive moms I interviewed was the CEO and, and co-founder of Rent the Runway, who was noticing after she had extended what were extremely generous family uh, benefits to all her employees, not just salaried ones, which she did when the company first was started. But she was noticing that relatively hardly any of the new dads were taking their parental leave. And so mm -hmm. when her chief technology officer is about to become a dad, she tells him, as you just suggested, I want you to take the full multi-month 
paid leave that we offer. And I want you to broadcast this, not just to your team, but to everyone in the company so that they can see, you know, here's a direct report to the CEO who's doing this. And she said, after that, every single new dad took his full leave. What a shock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's Jen Hyman. Jen Jen Hyman took five months after each of her her daughters was was born, four or five months. And her husband, who was self-employed, did so, too. And what's amazing about that time, anyone who's had children, is, you know, the first three months kind of suck, right? Like no one's in a routine and nobody's sleeping. Everybody's crying. You know, it just, you don't feel like yourself. And there's some real hormonal things. If you carried, there's some real hormonal things that you have to get through in your body. Yeah. Mom's mom's crying too. Oh, mom is crying more than the baby sometimes, (laughs) but you know, you don't feel like yourself till three months and then the baby's smiling and everyone's on a schedule and you actually feel like you could leave the house without feeling frenzied. And so having that five months where there was two months that I was able to have where I felt like I could go to my yoga class and I could, you know, spend some time enjoying my child instead of just caring for them. And it was so special. It was such a meaningful little itty bitty amount of time. Look, I've been in with my company almost 18 years. What is 10 months? You know, it, it's really such a different experience. Um, I do want to touch on one more topic because I sure. feel like this comes up in the topic of, of moms and, and working and, and certainly working parents as well. But this notion of work-life balance. So you have mm-hmm. a different take on this and I'd love to hear your perspective. So as we were talking about earlier, that chapter in the first book, about being a working mom was called manager moms are non acrobats. And while I totally agreed with that executive, and like I said, she becomes one of the half a dozen alums from the first book who shows up again, I did not know that there was anything other than work life balance as this unattainable ideal uh, until I started reporting the book. And after doing a couple of interviews with some of the younger executives, um, as I'm walking out the door with one of those younger executive moms, she happens to mention in passing that there's this new concept called work-life sway. And I had never heard about that. And yet she had just told me a story that totally epitomized that which is that, you know, she was working as, and still is, as an executive for a major auction house in Manhattan, lived in Manhattan, and one afternoon a video pops up on text on her cell phone, and it's the nanny letting her see her toddler take his first steps, her older firstborn son. And the whole concept of work-life sway is that when we need to be 110% totally present, we are for work, and we give it 110%. But if life intrudes, whether it's the washing machine overflowing or our our firstborn taking his first step, we sway out of work mode and into personal life mode, and we don't give ourselves grief over it. We Mm -hmm. know that we can sway back and forth to the extent we need to whenever we need to. And that whole concept I found so intriguing that when I submitted the manuscript, it was the subtitle of the book. The book Mm. was going to be called Power Moms, Secrets of Work-Life Sway from Two Generations of Executive Mothers. 
The publisher said, you know, great title, but I can't take the subtitle. No one will have any idea what you're talking about. And so she came up with the subtitle. But it is an important concept, particularly to the extent that we end up with hybrid work arrangements as we start to emerge from COVID-19. And some of us choose to continue to work remotely all the time or most of the time. We need to be able to allow ourselves the freedom and the flexibility to sway when Mm -hmm. needed, but also to set boundaries so that the workplace understands that I am not always on another chapter in the book. I am not reachable 24-7. There are, as one of these executive moms decided to do after COVID happened, protected hours in which I am not reachable. Between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m., I am doing my thing. I am with my kids. I am with my family. I am whatever. And I don't care if the world ends. And this actually was a younger executive mom who had worked remotely full-time before COVID. For a company that was 100% remote, but her kids weren't there. Yeah, right. Well, that's the difference. Once they all, when when this all started, my my best friend said, you know, this is this is basically our Great Depression. I said, yeah, but during the great during the Great Depression, the kids went to school. <laughs> We're stuck with them in the house. But it is it's this notion of I love how you said the ability to sway and determine when you sway, but also the ability to set those boundaries As when needed. I can. When I came back from my maternity leave, my first maternity leave, I blocked off from 5 to 7.30 on my calendar every day. I said, that's me commuting. That's bedtime, bath time. I've never taken it off. So my kids aren't even home at 5 o'clock anymore. <laughs> like, that's my time. Um, and everybody said, how do you keep that there? Don't people set meetings over it? And I said, yeah. And you don't show up, right? Exactly. Like, there's been the, the occasional one from the person who signs my paycheck that I show up for. But in general... You just don't show up and people figure it out. Um, And guess what? You didn't get fired over not showing up for that meeting. Exactly. And that's where the grace comes into this, where we're really overthinking and and overpressuring ourselves. Um, Well, this has been such a rich conversation and so varied in terms of the many facets that working parents and specifically working moms encompass. And I would love, could you just share with our listeners, um, it sounds like the book is out now, anywhere you you purchase your books, how can they engage with your work either online or through social channels? Well, I would highly recommend that people look at my personal website and it's just my name, joannelublin.com. It's got six easy links at the top because I'm agnostic over which online book retailer you choose. But if you decide to buy a hardback copy of Power Moms, I am willing to send you a personalized autographed book plate. All you have to do is email me at joannelublin at gmail.com and let me know a mailing address and that you've purchased a hardback copy. You know, I think we all have a lot of work to do across this space. And I thank you for the efforts that you're bringing in and all of the analysis and deep, deep conversations, meaningful and pragmatic conversations that you've had to bring to light. So thank you so much, Joanne. You're welcome. Don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please leave a review to give us direct feedback and also to get the podcast in front of more eyes. It's very much appreciated. (music) 